Welcome to the Wimp Podcast, episode four. Very excited this episode. Going to be talking shortly with my friend Julian Chambliss about Afrofuturism, Black representation, Black metadata, all kinds of things that really deserve a platform. It's uh, such a good discussion that I'm changing up the format this week uh, for two reasons. One, I'm going to extend my conversation with Julian. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of great stuff. And so I want to create space for that. So I'm ditching the uh, what deserves a platform this week because a lot of what J Julian's going to talk about, uh, in particular, the notion of time that he's going to be getting uh, to when we when we start talking about Afrofuturism definitely deserves a platform. Uh, so I'm going to skip that section there. Uh, I'm also going to be skipping the what did we learn this week uh, just be because of the sake of time. Because, ladies and gentlemen, at the end of the episode, the man finally made it in. Beats with B is a real deal. And we, he's got a great song for us this week, really apropos of this week's episode. So uh, it's like I said, it's a little bit longer. Uh, there are breaks in the middle. Make sure you pause, take a break, come back to it. But you don't want to miss it. This entire discussion with Julian is fantastic. The song with Brian is fantastic. Super excited about this episode. Uh, as always, you can find me on Instagram, wimp underscore podcast. Uh, and then as a community learning project, which I'm still committed to, uh, please reach out to me on Gmail at wimp.podcast at gmail.com. If you go to the anchor.fm website, just search for WIMP. Uh, there's also a space where you can send me a voice message, uh, in particular, if you want to you know, have your voice heard on the podcast, right? The whole point of WIMP is to demystify and to uh, take my voice down a bit. Shocking, right? The first couple episodes, all me. But that's really the episode. That's what we're after. And I think we pulled that off with Julian. Um, but we bring in your voices, right? This should be a community learning experience. And uh, sneak peek next week, uh, bringing in a couple of my students from previous class uh, to elevate their voices. It's going to be super exciting. So stay tuned. Coming up next, my interview with Julian Chambliss. All right, I am privileged to be joined this week uh, by Julian Chambliss, who is a professor at Michigan State University. Uh, Julian and I met at a conference, uh, OAH. Yep. Yeah, yep. in Denver. OAH. Yep. In San San Diego, I think. Yeah. Uh, Sacramento. No, wasn't San, no Sacramento. Sacramento. Yeah, San yeah, Diego. yeah. That's right, because that's when we did the OAH Amplified Initiative with right. the organization I work. Yeah. At. Yeah. Um, and we knew uh, people in common, but we had never met. That's right. Yeah, because uh, one of HNET's, the company I work for, organization I work for, is uh, board members was Robert Casanello, who American. you worked with down yep. at UCF. So, and then as fate would have it, we came here. You come to Michigan State, <laughs> and we got to hang out a little bit more, get right. lunch and stuff, and it's been cool. Um, so I'm glad to have you on the Wimp Podcast this week. Um, it's a great name, right? I know. Self-deprecation. That's the right, whole. Right. Yes. That's the whole point of it. Byron would be kid. Byron would be adult. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah. My kid. My youngest. Mom's plowed through those books. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it and then tore the movies apart. But anyway, whatever. <laughs> as as one does. Right. right? <clears throat> so uh, Julian, um, tell us a little bit about your scholarly pursuits. Sure. Like, what do you study? Right. What are you what are you interested in? 
and then we can kind of segue into a little bit of what I was talking about in the promos and whatnot about sure, yeah. representation and comics. Sure. I'm professor of English. I'm also the Val Berryman Curator of History at the MSU Museum. I study comics, American superhero comics in particular. I study race, power, identity. I usually say I study race, power, and identity in real and imagined spaces. So I actually do a lot in terms of digital humanities work. I also do digital humanities in terms of black spaces. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my work is exploring questions and related to race, American experience, the built environment, both in a, a kind of representative way, you know, the sort of symbolic nature of like urban experiences, cleaning themselves out in comics, but also in the ways that, you know, historic black spaces like at Eatonville, Florida, for instance, you know, what they mean in terms of like the black experience. Um, so my, my written work tends to be about comics and then my digital work tends to be about black, black spaces or, or questions of representation and race. I'm actually doing a project right now called Comics is Data. And a lot of that has been sort of thinking about ways to expand the data repository around information connected to comics. So we've been doing Wikidata editathons and using the data from our comics art collection here mm-hmm. to add to publicly accessible data about comics through Wikidata, which is the Wikimedia, which is the sort of data backbone of Wikipedia. Right. Uh, we just published an article um, called Days of Future Past, which is talking about uh, questions of race and representation in metadata. And the sort of problems represented by that as we were thinking about that in the context of the work we've been doing using data to try to understand questions of identity and questions of comics publication community. Unpack metadata for a second for those who think you're talking about how <laughs> Facebook is stealing all of their information. Right. Yeah. So um, when when catalog data in the library is entered, uh, when, when we get a book in the library, it's catalog and that catalog, that cataloger. Uh, creates a file for it, which is the the sort of library file, the mark file, the record of that that piece of that lit that book in the collection. That is full of a lot of information: the author, the illustrator, the publisher, the place of publication. If there was, you know, uh, but they also have like descriptors. You know, the Library of Congress, Dublin Core ish, so the category. So cartooning. African American, you know, if it's, if it's a black guy, that those descriptors, that information is the metadata attached to a real object. It's the data version of the object. So right. the object is a real object, like we know it's a comic book; it exists in the library. But the information saying that's in the collection is describing it, right? It's it's the data right. that describes it, and in some ways, that data profile. It's how we understand a thing in an institutional setting because you don't necessarily ever go into the library, but you can query the database and get a sense of like, well, we have this information in there. And that that metadata mm-hmm. in some ways is, is a part of the way that, you know, I sometimes talk about this to students. That's the way that reality is constructed. It's constructed through data and that data becomes like a, a justification for both understanding how institutions describe people, but also because of the way the data is constructed, it can actually be a place where um, the reality of people are erased or distorted, right? Um, 
prime example of this is in in the the library database. Um, Native American isn't used; it's Indian or American Indian or something like that. And you know things like African American versus Negro. These are all questions of of culturally derived descriptors of people of color or, or minorities that we would not necessarily use today, but they persist in the data record in part because we can't go back in time and rewrite the data record. What people have tried to do is actually create more culturally um, appropriate data descriptors. And that's a system that gets laid on top of the old system. But if you go and look. That old system's there. It's still, it's still there. Cause like, you know, you can't get rid of the data record. Right. When Unless you, you don't about... get people into the data record, yeah. in which case you're, you're sort of left out. And so like your story gets kind of institutionally erased. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, which is a huge thing in, in digital humanities and the kind of stuff I do. Like these are huge discussions that people have. You know, so. And when you talk about uh, you know how these how this metadata is constructed institutionally, right? Right. Um, I just did a podcast a few months ago about a book by Willie Jennings, After Whiteness, uh-huh. where he's talking about the colonial project of building higher right. education. Yeah. Right, and so. Very much. If we're talking about an institutional system of description, right, we're coming from that colonial right, yeah. plantation exactly. logic of education building, which is all about helping this white master son get educated so he can take over and right, run yeah. plantation, right? And then that gets filtered that, into yeah, education just into and, the next yeah. thing, right? So yeah, like that's one of the things. Um, you know, as someone who does digital humanities, I often think of myself as involved in projects of recovery. Because at some level, a lot of times I'm looking for data in the digital public record that is is affording an opportunity to better understand the Black experience. So, you know, and I I mean specifically the digital public record, right? So it's that that those those things have been digitized in an institutional perspective, and this used to be, a, I think, a bigger conversation in DH. Um, we talked about the post-colonial DH movement of a few years ago, which wasn't that long ago. But this was like a huge conversation because when things were being digitized, what they were digitized is things were already in the library. When things were already in the library, were basically old white guys. So <laughs> you know, this is always, always becomes like a, a recurring set of conversations like Wikipedia, which is the world's biggest open data repository. Mm-hmm. Notoriously bad when it comes to women, people of color, you know, it 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 is it is a place where the average user, these were statistics from a few years ago, but the average user is a white Western 34-year-old man. There are tremendous gaps in Wikipedia about women and their accomplishments, about people of color and their accomplishments, about black spaces, black cultural events, you know, all of that. And that's why you have wiki Wikipedia editathons, right? When where people are dedicating themselves to adding mm-hmm specific information of Wikipedia because that is a place like that that is one of the most referenced websites on this planet. Yeah. So if if there's not information about people of color or women or like, you know, trans people or whatever in there, then they kind of cease to exist in a kind of data repository. Yeah. Right. Um and it's similar to the the challenge around data is in particular in part because most of the mechanisms that people use to get access to data are 
they're snippets, right? Like when I talk to students about this actually in class, because, you know, as students at MSU, they have access to much more data than they would have as, as a normal adult. And I really talk to them about good data versus bad data and talk to them about the fact that, you know, when you, when you Google something and, and, and you're you know, doing an open, you know, open web search, you're only really seeing about statistically 10 to 15% of the web. Mm-hmm. Most everything else is behind a paywall, which you have access to as a, a graduate student, student yeah. and, you know, as an MSU student. And, and you can use the, the, the mechanisms of the library to get access to information in a very particular way. I'm, at, I, I'm also a big fan of open access in part because of that. Like, um, one of the things as a historian, I am a historian by training, even though I'm in the English department. One of the things as a historian I've always been really sort of concerned about is that people might have access to um, information, but doesn't necessarily mean they have knowledge, right? Like they they have access to Wikipedia, but Wikipedia's entries about the Civil War are not the most accurate thing I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can parse them and be like, eh, okay, but you know, but you have training. I have right. training, yeah. right? And I and therefore I, I kind of understand the the kind of inherent biases, um, but. You know, the the idea of the imperial archive and you know historians role as an interpreter of that archive which was very important to this local profession for decades um that that relationship between the archive and the historian as the sort of a translator of the archive and and that translation being a a statement of fact that the majority of people understood or and agreed with that is totally broken down in the mm-hmm. united states and you know, I went to graduate school in the '90s and graduated like the early 2000s. So, like, I was there when they were like having the history, <laughs> history debates, and you know, you know, questions about you know, are we teaching uh, American history anymore because of like these efforts to involve the voices of Native Americans or the, studies, yeah, you know, you know, all these other things. And and I will always remember like when I got my first job. And I started teaching the survey, the, the American History Survey, which is a, it's, you know, a stalwart. Start, yeah, yeah, everybody started. It started in 1763. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> like yeah. 1763, which makes perfect sense 60, 70 years ago. Right. Right. Because in the, you know, in the 50s, and you're going to teach American history, 1763 is the line of demarcation. I mean, like, it's, it's an important moment after the French and Indian War. Like, it, it sets up the kind of the march towards the American Revolution. But there's literally everything from 1500 to 1763. You're going to ignore that? You're going to ignore Native Americans and their throat? You're going to ignore the sort of, like, origins of slavery? You're going to ignore, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The answer is yeah. And that's not how anybody coming out of graduate school at the time would have thought the teachers were. And of course I started at like 1500 mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like you know, rushed to try to get to, to 1877. But, you know, those were, those were institutional decisions that reinforced a view of history that really ignored the reality of the American experience. Mm-hmm. And like, you could sort of see it, right? Like it was like, okay, kids, but in the real world, 
and the real history that you have to deal with because you're dealing with the consequences of that real history all the time. You have to understand that, like, you know, some of the resentments that people have, especially people of color, some of the consequences around how you understand the quote unquote American experience are really built on people in power creating uh, a deliberate misremembering, misremembering of the past that serves to reinforce a national national narrative that that validates their position, right? And that's always, you know, a kind of consequence of like, you know, institutions and archives, right? And and that's why a lot of people who are doing DH in the circles I travel in are always very, very concerned about the archive, very concerned about thinking about the ways the information is being presented and trying to construct a more humane, a more equitable, a more um, honest. Uh, yeah, honest. And honest in this context, of course, becomes very complicated because that honesty uh, really calls into question assumptions about whiteness and assumptions about the national story. It's very hard for the average American to understand. And I often, you know, I teach a class on Afrofuturism. And at the beginning of that class, I talk to them about like what we mean when we say modernity. Because that's like a term that gets thrown around, but really modernity is a set of assumptions about the history of the world that are based on European benchmarks. Right. Like they're they're completely on European benchmarks. They make no sense if you're any other part of the world because that's not their history. So therefore, why would they think of that as modern? Mm -hmm. But attached to that is a series of like assumptions and symbolism, right? Like, you know, if you're using machines, you're modern. If you're not, you're primitive. Right. Right. You know, and so much devastation caused by that cultural construct. Right. Yeah. Civilized versus primitive. Uncivilized. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and and even in the contemporary context, you know, is it OK for the United States or the West to do X over here in the Middle East? Well, they have not roads like we have and they use animal power like we use. Machine. I'm like, probably, those are yeah. those are old ideas. Uh, they don't necessarily reflect whether or not that culture has value. They really reflect a kind of a kind of conscious and unconscious narrative about right and structure and power that is a part of like, you know, a kind of Western and, you know, colonial narrative, right? Like that's part of the justification for how you get here, right? Like mm -hmm. these people don't have the things we have. We're bringing technology. We're bringing civilization. Therefore, we get to do X, Y, and Z to these people. And like, you have to be mindful of that all the time when you're when you're thinking about even even today in a global global context because like the consequences of that remain very important when you think about climate. Actually, right? Yeah. You know, the people who are experiencing the consequences of climate change probably an accelerated rate are actually people in less urbanized, less industrialized places. Less Eurocentric right. cultures. Yeah. And in part they're experiencing that because the developed world is exploiting them as a part of like their yeah. you know, urban urban industrial order, right? Like they're extracting from there, polluting, and then the pollution is creating devastation there. Yeah. Um, and it's always like, you know, a kind of weird dark closed loop to that <laughs> in a way you know like yeah. it's very particular
Well, now that we've kind of laid the the framework for institutional, sure. you know, Eurocentric uh, structuring and creation of data, let's take a short break, and then we're going to come back to where you kind of just introduced there at the end. We'll we'll kind of unpack the term of Afrofuturism, sure, and then kind of let that segue into uh, you know our broader conversation on comics. So we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back with Julian, uh, and we, as I mentioned last segment, we're going to transition into kind of opening up a discussion, at least initially, about Afrofuturism, sure. which, you, which you briefly mentioned. Yeah, kind of unpacking what that means for our audience, right? Because that just sounds like I think for the vast majority of our audience, they're like, "Oh, Black Panther," <laughs> right? Yeah, that's very true for a lot of people. Um, Afrofuturism, I usually define it as the intersection between speculation and liberation inspired by African diasporic perspective, right? And so, you know, there are multiple definitions of Afrofuturism, but primarily all of them are unified in their emphasis on decentering whiteness or Eurocentric perspectives and emphasize uh, recovering or changing our our ways of thinking about how systems operate, how society operates. So Alondra Nelson has a great, great definition of Afrofuturism, puts a lot of emphasis on, it's a black perspective on modernity. It's a black perspective on on cultural production. It's a black perspective on um, subject and subjectivity. Uh, Ronaldo Anderson, who's a great Afrofuturist theorist, talks about Afrofuturism being influenced and in multiple phases, right? Like there's a history, it's a historical practice. It's black speculative practice. So our futures doesn't necessarily have to be about the future. It can be about um, the past because at some level, what our future is asking us to do is it's complicating our understanding of history and time and the past. My colleague, Kenitra Brooks is in the English department with me, actually describes Afrofuturism as a theory of time in part because the nature of time and the nature of um, the precepts around time, the calendar, all those are colonial constructs. Mm -hmm. uh, Rashida Phillips, who's a very well-known Afrofuturist theorist, she writes about time as a construction of colonialism. She talks about the Greenwich Mean, the Greenwich uh, Conference, where the time zones were created. She just did a huge project called it's like Time Zone Protocol Project where she's really unpacking the idea of time. And I talk to students about this because time is actually this thing that everyone, especially in the Western context, is a slave to. Like, the, you know, it, it comes, it starts very early. It starts in school, the bell rings, you move to a different class. Bell rings, you start a class. Bell rings, you, you finally leave class, right? Like that's a regimentation associated with time. But almost everything about time in school is slightly misaligned with biological development. Like there's been studies shown that like we send kids to school at the wrong, at certain ages at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. Like- Yeah, my kids will definitely <laughs> right, yeah. tell you that that's true. Right, teenagers should go to school much later, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like, like and they should, you know, like, they should leave later, like, you know, it, 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 we're not taking into account their actual 
biology. We're not taking into account their actual biology, and that's unless it's sports, then we take that biology. And right, and then we maximize the afternoons yeah. before we start to. So, um, at some very basic level, Afrofuturism is about decentering a kind of Eurocentric belief system and epistemology that is tightly connected to colonialism, uh, which is a byproduct of the imperialism expansion of the of, of the age of discovery and trying to recover at some level those things that were lost by that traumatic system like because the west was built on a traumatic exploitive system oh yeah right uh and and we know that and we live with the the consequences of that all the time like i i point out like you know if you look at a that map of the world in every classroom it's wrong Every map, anyone who knows anything about maps will tell you it's wrong, like it, the, the proportions are wrong. Mm -hmm. But the proportions are a direct result of like navigational practices that we trace back to the age of discovery, right? Like, and yeah. so the reason the map looks that way is because it's it's actually a byproduct of like colonial expansion. If we made a map today of the world and we printed it, it would look completely different. And yeah, there's, find, there's versions of that yeah, online. Yeah. yeah, you can find them online. But, you know, when I, you know, even saying that to students, like, what are you talking about? I explain like you know the consequence of these things and so it's distortive when you look at it you see things on the map that are not reflective of reality a real map africa does not look like no africa is huge, huge right like yeah. you know it's, that's why there's like 47 different countries you know 62 different countries like you know it's many many countries in there like china and you know you put china American side of China, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not right. Um, but that's, that is literally one of these things where like, it's a consequence of a system. And until someone asks you to question the system, you never do. But when they ask you to question the system, it is very traumatic. Yeah. Right. It's super traumatic because it's asking you to think fundamentally about things that you assume to be true but no one, but no one ever really asked you before. So now someone's asking you to rethink your approach to, to how society operates. And they're also asking you to rethink that in the context of like, well, a consequence of why you've always accepted this is that you have these sort of unearned privileges that are associated with your, your whiteness, because like one of the, one of the tools of that system was the construction of race. Yes. Right. Like, like that is one of the things that we, we talk about in the class, like as in the early on, I talk about the idea that race is a, a constructed thing that was used as a part of the control mechanisms of that colonial system. Right. And the reason that was important because it, it allowed for the mechanism of exploitation to work more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it's like, in some ways it's like um, code in a, in a machine. Right, because the machine is coded this way, you could get to operate it a certain way. Almost everything about the last 200 years has been people going like that code doesn't work. We need a new code. Right. Right, like basically. Um, and the instability associated with that code is something that people don't want to think about. But since it was constructed, like it's made up, if you look, you can find the instability. Right, because whiteness is actually an identity. It's constructed in opposition to like blackness. 
So most students that I, you know, I've, I've taught for almost 20 years now, and I can say with certain definite, definite, when I walk into a room, I've taught it pr primarily my institutions, PWIs, as a black guy. <laughs> when I walk into a room and I'm talking about race, I can say with, you know, 90% certainty, most of you in this room were not considered white at some point in American history. Because that's true. That's right. <laughs> right. Like you were not. Like you were, there are various moments in time. Irish? Not white. Not white. Irish. <laughs> you know, right. Scandinavian? It's not, not white. about color. Right. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and the way that you got, you know, rode into whiteness had a lot to do with like political and economic and an oppositional definition to blackness mm -hmm. that's very important. And I, I used to teach um, a class on um, racism and ethnic history in the United States. And it was basically a class about the construction of whiteness because like that's really what you need to understand, understand the United States. You need to understand the construction of whiteness. Right. Because it's constructing opposition to blackness because of slaves. Well, that's why Willie Jennings' book is called After Whiteness. Yeah. Right. When talking about the right. higher education project. Yeah. Because it's after that's been right. created and established. And that's, you know, that's a constructive process mm -hmm. almost all the time. And so when you're an Afrofuturist and you're dealing with Afrofuturist thinkers, what they are doing is often unpacking that construction. And and things get layered on top of that because not only is you know whiteness constructed, but then gender and gender gets gets commingled with it mm -hmm. in a very particular way. Both masculinity and femininity, mm -hmm. right? As as sort of like subcategories of of the code, so that you know certain kinds of masculinity are acceptable in certain spaces that help facilitate the system, and then certain kinds of masculinity are unacceptable. In certain spaces because they're a threat to the system, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, aggressive strength, perfectly acceptable in a money-making project like professional sports. Right. But but only with certain people. You know, right, yeah. Physical power in, you know, uh, and on a plantation. Yo, peel that back a little. We don't want you putting your, you know, you don't push back, you don't fight back. Right. You want you docile. Right, yeah, exploitation. You save that right, yeah. for when you're in the field, and then use that energy there, right. not right as a, an expression of resistance or anything. Like, yeah, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but, but I, I think there's the truth to that. Like, we, and again, we have to understand about the nature of race as a a way to identify that masculinity and blackness allows for black males to be animals to be used right and so in the plantation like oh they're working the field i mean like black people are the thing that were were was uh valuable on a plantation mm -hmm. like if you look at plantation records it like, is the it, asset that right. is the asset right? right it's not the land the land is useless until until you get black people on it right right, <laughs> right? so like when when slave owners die and you look at the tax records where you're looking at the thing that that is worth something is the people is the slaves. The land ain't worth nothing without slaves. So you can have a huge plantation, no slave, it's useless. So it's the slaves, they are the primary asset. Um, and, you know, that carries through to your sports analogy, right? Because we do have that sense that, you know, strong 
aggressive black people make great football players. But intelligence or, um, and you know, sort of strategic thinking, oh, they're not good for that. So they can't be, they can't be coaches, they can't be quarterbacks, yeah. mm-hmm. but they can be defensive linemen, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Right, it literally doesn't make any sense. Like, 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 they understand, but I mean, um, and of course, we, 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 we can see it, but we don't necessarily understand it, right? Uh, Even though right now, I mean, I think there was a there's a lawsuit in the NFL right now for a guy, an African American coach, about I think was the Cleveland Browns, maybe it was recent. They was suing because, like, you know, they were they were. NFL NFL has many policies about diversity, but right. the reality is that in terms of higher echelon authority, no owners are black. Right. It's yeah. It's it's right. a, it's like we'll do the interview. Right. But right. we don't want to hire a right. piece of person. So yeah, I mean, just to to really underscore the 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 attempt at demystifying the white male in this, I don't even watch American football anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up a Chicago bears fan, right? Because it was in the, you know, 84 bears. Oh, sure. That whole like Super Bowl shuffle. Yeah. Popular, you know, juggernaut. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't even, I I just, I find the sport just ludicrous in terms of just expectation and the damage it does to, to human beings. Hank Willis Thomas, who's a photographer, um, he has a, a photo that juxtaposes a plantation worker and a football player. I forget the title of it, but it's a great striking photo because it's a commentary on the sort of placement of like, you know, the kind of black body as an exploited body. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, obviously this is always, we can talk endlessly about this, but it's all part and parcel of that system, right? And that's one of the things that I think Afrofuturism as a as an epistemology of thought is always trying to unpack in part because unpacking it allows for a better future where everybody black and white would be better off because part of the argument of course is that if you can create a system that is not exploitive to black people um not exploitive around these questions of gender right you know sort of black feminist ideology is very important to Afrofuturism then the net result of that system would be a system that would not exploit anybody. Right. Like it wouldn't exploit white people either. Right. Like I think whenever something's black, whenever black is with something, it's white like people zero, assume. Zero sum game. It's like, yeah. if you're not in power, then these people like you're not in power. But if you're right. in power, then we're not. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not, you know, my standard joke for students is like, you do not have to be German to understand Marxism. Right. Because Karl Marx was your. <laughs> Like, but no one would expect that you need to have German stock to understand Marx, right? Like, you just understand the theory, and then you're like, oh, oh, I'm a Marxist. Like, yeah. it's the same thing with Afro Future. As long as you understand it, you can do it, right? And like, it's, it's a question about oppression and exploitation and working against that in a systematic way. Yeah. And, and you can do that in lots of different contexts. Like, you know, you don't have to necessarily be like, hey, I want to redo this entire system. I had a student once who was like, I think he was in like dentistry or a nursing or something like that. He's like, how would I be average futures now? We're like, well, you know, the, the way to think about it is are there systems in the practice that you're doing that systematically 
undercut people's ability to have care. And if you can identify that and and work toward a more equitable system, then you can do something that's Afrofuturist. And he's like, oh, okay, like that was easy for him to understand. Like that's at the core of it. All right. So let's let's take that thinking of Afrofuturism as creating a better future right. for black and white. And we'll shift over to Wakanda <laughs> and the most popular uh, expression of that imagination, at least in white American popular culture today. So we'll take a short break and then we'll come back and dive into Black Panther. All right, welcome back. We're here again with Julian and we are transitioning into what I've been advertising all week because, you know, that's what draws the clicks. <laughs> Comics, the right. MCU, uh, and we'll start, obviously, uh, coming out of Afrofuturism mm-hmm. with with Black Panther. Right. So Black Panther is a cultural phenomenon, you know, in terms of, you know, everybody's like, this is the, the Black representation we've been waiting for. And in a lot of ways, it right. really is. Sure. Right. In terms yeah. of the, the director, the actors, the whole line. Um, but Black Panther itself as a comically created construct, right? That right. was created by a white guy named Jack Kirby. Yeah. Um with assistance by Stanley. Who gets a lot more credit than he probably <laughs> should, right? Yeah, that's a whole another podcast. But yes, Jack Kirby created um the Black Panther. I mean, at one point it was the Cold Tiger. You can always find some early drafts of uh, what they were going to do with the character. But yes, that one of many Black characters actually that Jack Kirby created. That in itself is really interesting. I've, I've often, I think I've written about sort of Jack Kirby on kind of racial imaginary. That was very common for um, immigrants of a certain sort of European background like Jack Kirby, like uh, he was he was a son of immigrants and he and he often imagined in a lot of his early golden age stuff, he had he had a lot of like um kid gang comics like you know Boy Commandos and you know sidekicks that, that he created uh, in, in the golden age. And they were often representative that of that kind of urban landscape of New York, right? Which were multi Lots of immigrants from all over the world crammed into these urban areas. All of them, sort of like in competition or in the process of an Americanization. Oh, you mean it wasn't a melting pot? They yeah, all just didn't blend into. They all didn't just blend into one. Like you know, Jewish street gangs was a real thing. Uh, he was in one and talked about it. Um, but I think he also believes in a kind of Americanization that was coercive. At, in practice, but you know, inspirational given the context of the experience that a lot of those immigrants fleeing, you know, sometimes really dire situations coming to the United States and have an opportunity to be involved in the, the urban industrial transformation of a period. And they garnered some benefits from that, right? In terms of like material access um, to housing and, and to create, you know, have the opportunity to create like a a better life for themselves and their descendants that is very tangible. Like this is a very important part of like the American experience, but it's not in any way, shape or form equal. Right. You know, one of the things that was an important part of that was 
those people losing their ethnic identity and becoming quote unquote white. Um, Jacob, you know, Jack Kirby was Jacob Kurtzenberg. <laughs> like, you know, like, yep. you know, the, you know, like there, there was a coercive Americanization that was a part of that, that, right. that process. And all that Americanization was to, to shave off those, those elements of difference that were noticeable, right. in, in mm-hmm. terms of American context, so it was talk like an American, dress like an American, get an American name, you know, act, share the value. part of that Americanness was what we talked about earlier. Right. About that yeah. Yeah. Construction of whiteness. Yeah. Construction of whiteness. So like, you know, even if you couldn't be white and for, you know, early in that process, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, many of those people could not be white. Italians were not white. Right. They were not white. Um, and that's why they formed the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> well, the but I think one of the things about the post-war period is that the suburbanization and um, the kind of post-war GI Bill, that consumptive lifestyle, that mass culture helped a lot of those immigrants transition to a kind of whiteness. Because, yeah. Right, because you're emulating customers. whiteness, you're you're consuming whiteness, you are... You know, you've you you've dropped any names like you know you you no longer speak the native tongue. You're you're consuming the same products. Your kids are going to the same schools. You are removed from the spaces that were most a generation before considered dangerous and 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 um, degrading to the American experience, like the inner city, basically. Right. And then the people you left there were black, and you're like, of course, those people are horrible. <laughs> like, white flight, white which really flight. wasn't necessarily white flight right, right, until yeah. they were done no, with the flight. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then once they got there, they were all very white, right? Uh, and so it's like you know, it's very particular. <laughs> it's a very particular story, and and comics sort of play into that at some level. I I, I think uh, uh, Kirby's Black Panther, um, at, at one level acknowledges some of the things we talk about. Like it is a it is a post colonial narrative. Right, because it's a character based in a world where you know he's basically saying, "Well, what what would what would Africa be like if there had not been slavery?" Like in that that premise itself is, you know, incredibly complicated, in part because it acknowledges in its in its structure some negative consequences of, of colonialism, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, there's a great comic scholar named Martin Lund who argues that the the whole sequence where Black Panther is introduced in the pages of Fantastic Four is a kind of like, you know, American mythology of its positioning to the developing world and what what at that time was the third world in the context of the Cold War, that we are friends to these these countries in Africa. We are... um, we offer freedom and, and support against the sort of dangers posed by uh, our Cold War um, adversaries right. who, you know, would re-enslave them and exploit them. I mean, we don't want to do that, right? Like the Fantasy of Force stands in as a kind of science, you know, technocratic big brother who wants to help these Africans. And and I think there's some truth to that, right? Because in fact, many of the comics of, of the Silver Age from Marvel are very much Cold War comics. They do really emphasize an American defense ideology uh, and America as a, a bulwark against fascism, against mm-hmm. communism, against all the things that were bad uh, in the world. 
and and so in some ways, you know, that initial introduction of Black Panther has these very complicated signifiers that really speak to some historical realities that were a part of a kind of 1960s dialogue where the United States is trying to, in the midst of the very complicated competition with Russia around communism, to promote itself as a beacon of, of freedom, even while the, the Russians are pointing out, look how you treat Black people. Yeah, no, let's, let's put on my history hat here just for a minute. Let's talk about Vietnam <laughs> right, right, yeah, and America's right, yeah. role in... Right, yeah, exactly. Let's put the French back in colonial control after World War Right, I think it was. Yeah. Or two, no, two. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, like, you know, you're like, how is that... <laughs> How, how do they pull that off? They they do it with a lot of propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States and comics, yeah. to some degree, in some ages, is absolute propaganda. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's a propaganda that is part and parcel of the, of the domestic entertainment um, narratives of the post-war period, it, especially in 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 the context of you know, the United States is a world power, right? Coming out of World War II, we help establish the global order across a number of fields, economic system, you know, the security frameworks, and, you know, even cultural in- Cultural production. In country, yeah, cultural production. But even in the context of, of Marvel Comics, you know, one of the things, you know, coming out of the war, people were petrified that the atomic bomb would, you know, end all life on Earth. Oh, yeah. For good reason. Right, like you know, we were yeah. We used to have duck and cover drills, right? In grade school, which sure. is ludicrous. Right, yeah, it's Get crazy. Under your desk right, and you're yeah. Good. You know, but one of the things about that fear is that was counterproductive to the Cold War um, contest, right? Because you really need you really need more scientists to make more powerful weapons. That's why you get the hydrogen bomb so quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the Russians have the bomb now. We need a bigger bomb. Not mm-hmm. stopping. We. <laughs> We need a bigger bomb. Like, oh, okay. There's also like, you know, we forget about this, but I sometimes talk about this in class. Sometimes I teach a technoculture class in English department. Um, and I talk about, you know, in the, the late 40s, early 50s, there was a lot of talk in American government about how they could use nuclear weapons for good things. Right? And they have these projects, like, you know, like we could use it for construction. And then we got to use like, you know, suitcase size nukes to blow up mountains and stuff. And you're like, how how could anyone think that? Right. Right. <laughs> they also had the nuclear power rocket project, which I thought was actually crazy too. But at least they were trying to do it for space. Tra- I don't know. I like, I've always found that one like, that doesn't seem the least bit safe, but, you know, it was dumping atomic weapons out the back of a rocket and detonating them for propulsion. You're like, how is that yeah. even vaguely? Yeah. <laughs> but they Conveniently, we had Avengers and Iron Man showing us. This is <laughs> not going to work. It's not going to work. So, yeah, I mean, I think Black Panther is introduced at a moment where Questions about the Cold War, questions about representation, especially from an American context, need to be shorn up, shorn up, especially in the context of the developing world in Africa. And that character does that, right? At the end of that introduction in Fantastic Four, you know, despite the sort of transgressive elements that are in that introductory story, you know, what if, you know, a country in Africa was never in the colonized, how advanced would they be? right there what you know he defeats the fantastic four remember like 
in the introduction, T'Challa invites them to Africa. And then when they get there, he beats them up. Right. And part of the reason he beats them up is in part because like people like Ben Grimm are like, you know, these jungle bunnies can't possibly be capable. And like he's like beats them all up. And then asks for help and they give their help and he defeats, you know, Claw, who's the sort of, you know, quintessential villain. But at the end of that story, he dedicates himself to being a hero like any other, basically. And you don't, you know, assimilation. Yeah, it's kind of an assimilation. Then he he joins the Avengers and becomes like, you know, a stalwart member of the Avengers. Um, but there are some interesting stories in the context of his run in Avengers. Uh, in particular, like he runs into the Sons of the Serpent, which is a great story. That's where Monica Lynn is introduced as a freaking love interest. Mm-hmm. And that's a, the Sons of the Serpent are a racist group. They're a group trying to incite hate. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, he offers up again in the context of that Avenger story a kind of commentary, a kind of racial progressivism that's very common in the 1960s, right? Like yeah. most white people aren't racist. They just, they're just following bad ideas. Like we can all get along if we just sort of overcome those ideas, not acknowledging the the, the power of structural racism. And one yeah. of the things about the Black Panther as a character, it's really interesting is that despite his origin and the very transgressive elements that are in it, it's later characters who are introduced after him, who are much more tied to the black experience in deliberate ways. And they offer really, they're an attempt to offer narratives that are paralleling what's happening on the street, right? Like, And and, and Luke Cage is, is the prime example of this. As a character, he's the second African-American because Black Panther's not a black, he's not, not American. Right. First African-American character is actually the Falcon. Right. But Luke Cage is the first Marvel character Mm -hmm. to have his own comic book. And Luke Cage's story is very complicated because it's coming right after the Attica riots. Mm -hmm. So the first issue, there was a lot of commentary on incarceration, the incarceration incarceration state. Now, he is a bad man, but he is wrongly accused. He's experimenting on, which is referencing the Tuskegee experiments, like how he gets yeah. his power, right? right. Um, he's abused by prison guards, you know, and it's all this happening in the context of a, of a reformer warden coming to the prison, right? right. And, and, you know, all those elements are in there, but, you know, his costume, his story, you know, his, his sort of like um, narrative is very much tied to Harlem, very much tied to symbolism of incarceration, very much tied to like a kind of meta-narrative on the uh, a kind of misreading of, of black masculinity, right? Like, you know, he has still hard skin. Skin that, you know, my colleague John Jennings is a great comic scholar and maker at UC Riverside. You know, he described one time, it's like his skin is, um, prevents him from feeling, right? It's still hard skin. Like he's, yeah. you know, he's seen as like this sort of like, this thing that can't be hurt. And, he, and even though in the comics, his, his clothes get destroyed, his skin is always there. And it really reinforces this sort of meta narrative about the sort of bestiality of the black body. Yeah. You know, it's you know the kind of inhuman nature of it, which we see you know all too often related to that kind of carceral narrative and related to policing as a pretense for a kind of violence that you know is devastating. And so, like whenever we talk about comic book characters, like we can see 
a kind of evolution happening in terms of like them trying to become more attuned to the experience of people of color. But since for the most part, black people are not writing these characters. Like no black person wrote Black Panther until the 1990s. Christopher Priest. Okay, so so good. So I want to (laughs) before we end this segment real quick. How many black writers have there been for Luke Cage and or Black Panther? Um, Christopher Priest wrote Black Panther in the late 1990s, like 1998 to 2003. He was the first black writer to write Black Panther. Yeah, 98. Um, yeah, like 98, 97, 98. That's when it started. Um Luke Cage, the first black writer. That might have been David F. Walker. Well, that was like recently. That can't be right. So like, Let me think about this. Can you count the number of black writers for these black characters on one hand? Oh. Because I want to tr- transition from this into the last segment on kind of representation. Right. Yeah, it'd be two hands, but it ain't a lot of people. Yeah. It ain't a lot of people. I mean, in recent time, in modern times, there's, you know, David F. Walker has written, Luke Cage, he's written, um, and uh, Eric, I forget his last name, he's written, Chuck Brown has written a Black Panther story. I mean, it's one thing to say, have they written it? It's another thing, have they written it in like a regular series or a minute, right? right? That's the right. Like, so like, giving you know, them time to build up this. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, that might be one hand. A black writer attached to a black character for a major publisher in a run. Yeah, that might be one hand. That's a good question, actually. Because it's not a lot of people. Yeah. Like, because there's not a lot of. We think of comics as being like this big industry, but it's really a tiny industry. And so the number of people who are like for higher writers writing for the major comic companies, which in this context, for for the sake of this argument, is Marvel, DC, Image, Image, and then Dark Horse, Boom. And then there are a lot of smaller boutique, you know, kind of transmedia comic companies. Um, you know, Marvel, DC, Image, those they are employing a lot of the same people. They're not. It's not. It's not a thousand. It's not a thousand people. It ain't a thousand people. I mean, there might be a thousand people writing comics, but are they writing them for these companies? No. You know, Marvel's you know writing roster. I don't even think it's fifty people. No, no, it can't be. No way, because it's usually like one writer is writing like four or five titles or something. So. All right, well, let's take it. Let's take one more break. Okay, and then we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, representation writing. And uh, listener, you've been waiting three long episodes for it, but this week, Beats with B is going down. <laughs> I'm also going to go let Brian in. I think he's standing outside. So uh, we'll be back uh, shortly to uh, one more segment to finish up with uh, Julian. Okay, one more time. Welcome back. Uh, we've got um, Julian here to finish up. We're going to pick up where we left off talking about representation in terms of the creators okay. of you know black 
superheroes in particular, right? Try and stick in the wheelhouse of Marvel, DC. I mean, we can touch image a little bit, but outside of that, I think we're going to lose most of our writers, our readers, <laughs> listeners. That's what they do, right? They listen. Yeah. Right. They, they, they listen. So we, we, we left off the last segment talking about how, um, you know, there's a difference between doing a couple of a one-off or even like a five issue little like right a mini series or something right, like that yeah. versus establishing a run right right and so there are certain authors and i'm going to reel them off and, and you're going to find the connecting thread about them right like jason aaron jonathan hickman uh-huh. dan slot <laughs> michael ben brian michael bendis right. right that have these long extended runs right. for major titles where they're really kind of constructing you know, the major mythos of these characters, right. at least in different periods of their, you know, existence. All of those writers are white guys. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Talented. Super right, talented. Right? Some yeah. really great stuff. Yeah. Hickman's my, my guy. I love Yeah. Him. I love Hickman. Yeah. And what Jason Aaron did with Thor was amazing. Unbelievable. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, Slot did Love and Thunder didn't quite do it justice. Oh yeah. No, that was, but yeah, yeah. Slot, Slot's been good too. Yeah. I, yeah. I wanted to dig a little bit more into his Fantastic Four when I only got, maybe uh 24 25 issues into it even the great mighty avengers run which i was really sad that it got canceled but it was good i I did like a bit of his spider-man oh yeah i think that was awesome yeah i collected a lot of that yeah i had a lot of that um but so anyway right we were talking about uh falcon we're talking about luke cage we're talking about black panther then there's storm Right, a major member of the X Men, mm-hmm. which was a, a superhero group specifically created. You know, the whole idea of mutants, right, is right a symbolism for you know marginalized groups, or at least read that way. Right, and so and you know so you know eventually, really embraced to be so that way by Stanley. Um, but you know the original X Men, the original five: Beast, Cyclops, Iceman, Marvel Girl. Angel are middle class white kids, yeah. and the only thing that makes them different is that, like you know, inside they're different, right? <laughs> like, right. They have a gene. <laughs> they have a gene, it right? Like, the superpowers that these other superpowers. Right. And have people get hate them genes. for it, but if they right. just don't do anything, people wouldn't even know. So it's it's giant size X Men number one, which introduces all these characters of color, yeah, and and really culturally diverse characters. Uh, you know, that's when Wolverine is introduced. That's when Storm is introduced. That's when Thunderbird, the Native American characters. That's when Sunfire, the Japanese American, Banshee, Scottish, right? Yeah. Um, Colossus, the Russian. Every one of those characters, they're led by a white guy, though. They're led by Cyclops, right? Which you know, they're still like a kind of white male authority figure who's you know, which commanding is still male. true today in Hickman's run. Um. No, I think in Hickman's run, um, with his relaunch of the event, uh, uh, X Men, Charles Magneto. Oh, but there's so Emma much more, so much more going on there. And, there is some, but yeah. I mean, as far as the Quiet Table goes, that whole the Quiet Council. But the Quiet Council divided three, and like I think one of the things about that run that people will eventually write about, but won't write about it right now is how it takes the idea of a minority group asserting its rights and the trauma associated with because obviously he's 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 playing off the idea of the black lives matter movement yeah that's how i read it i'm like okay because in some ways the mutant metaphor is ill-suited to effectively forgive me dear listener 
effectively talk about racial things, right? Because like, you know, Chris Claremont actually introduces in his run um, class questions in the X-Men because he, he introduces the Morlocks, which creates like, because the X-Men on the surface, when you look at them, are a upper class group of elite people with mm-hmm. power and like Batman. Like Batman, right? Okay. But in in the comic, it you know it kind of it, it kind of slides under the radar in part because they have an even more upper class group of mutants with elite power who are evil, the Hellfire Club, right? Not to be confused with the Hellfire Club from Stranger Things, right? Yes, different, different reference. Hellfire Club, yeah. Yep. Um, but Claremont introduces the Morlocks. He also introduces you know their leader Callisto, who you know you know challenges. Um, the kind of like aesthetic and because again when you look at the x-men they look good i mean like, <laughs> they are they are very powerful people and they they also are physically attractive beyond you know, there's always this problem about aesthetics and comics but the morlocks look horrible right they're a lower class they live underground like you know again they're playing off the literature morlocks mm-hmm. from hg wells um, and so it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, there are, there's some sophistication uh, in Claremont's. Like, he's, he understands, I think, you know, I, and that happens a lot in his run with, like, his use of different female characters and female relationships and female friendships. I mean, I, I, I think even his his writing of um, Cyclops, because, like, he lets Cyclops and Jean grow up in that comic, you know, notoriously... How old is Batman? He's 32. He's been 32 for like 75 or 80 years. Right. Um, but, you know, both Spider-Man and um, there's very few characters who've like literally aged in comics. But Spider-Man's aged up, you know, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where like he left high school, he went to college, he graduated with college, he's, you know, gotten a job. You know, in some version of the story, he has a daughter. Mm-hmm. Um Robin, the original Robin, did Grayson aged up, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that's very rare. A lot of times in comics, they, they really struggle with like letting characters get older, like ch- change it all. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, I, I do think it's interesting to think about the questions related to representation in the context of the X-Men in the past versus what I think of as a much more nuancy conversation about power, representation, um, identity that's played itself out across Hickman's X-Men. Right. Because I, because one of the things that's really interesting about that, story, about that story is the way, not just simply that the sort of marginalized group is asserting in the public sphere our right to, to, to exist, right? To have a space, to, to have a home, to all these other, all of which if you just pause and think, resonate with the number of narratives that we can associate with like minorities across the American experience since like the sixties, like right. from the Asian American to Native American, you know, all these, you know, movements, Black Lives Matter, all the way up to Black Lives Matter. But it's also how like the fear represented by that creates like these institutional alliances across groups that would otherwise not be would supposedly not have anything in common like 
you know, Orcus, which is the sort of major uh, antagonist group, is made up of scientists from like AIM, Hydra, Shield. Right. <laughs> you know, like if you know anything about comics, like it's like the CIA bad, the <laughs> right? Like they, yeah. you know, all these people who would ordinarily be have issue with each other, right. like we're gonna put that on pause, and we're gonna work to kill these people. And all they're trying CIA, to do is the Taliban and the KGB walk into a bar. Right. Yeah. I'm like, hey, okay. yeah, yeah. What we're gonna do is like we're gonna pause all that and like these people have an island and they're living large. We can't have that. Right. And like, you know, that's crazy. Right. Um, they just wanna you know, <laughs> they just wanna be left alone. But we can't let it they can't let it happen. So yeah, it's interesting. So what is there a a run of a a black superhero? Uh-huh written by a black creator mm-hmm. that you feel this is it right this is a this is an accurate this is this is a representation that that is meaningful that is that matters sure. that resonates with the lived experience of black folks sure i think you know every comic scholar would tell you the run of milestone comics in the early 1990s um static in particular Static and Icon, I think, blessing all of them, you know, personally, I think they're very, very important. Um, but Static's run, Icon, uh, Blood Syndicate, Hardware, if I was going to put them in order, I'd put them in that order. Static, because he's sort of like their Spider Man, and I'm a huge Spider Man fan, like it's like every young kid, boy, kid was. Icon, their Superman. The Blood Syndicate is sort of like their X-Men, you know? Um, and then Hardware is a lot of like the Iron Man. And I love Iron Man, and I love Hardware. But, you know, if you're going to think about it from an academic standpoint, I'd be like, well, that's the way I would order it. Uh, that entire universe, the Milestone universe, the stories they said in Dakota, the work of the writers like Dwayne McDuffie, the artists like Chris Cross, like, they did things there to tell a story of a, a kind of multicultural world. And it was multicultural. It wasn't just, it was all black people. There were white people in there. They did things around race. They did things around um, queerness. They did things around class. They did things around um, police violence and all of that. That was sort of baked into the world, right? And, and that was in the early 1990s. Right, like that right. was like 1992 to 1996, seven, something like that. Um, but I bet if I were to ask my audience, raise your hands, who have you heard of any of these comics? Well, they just rebooted them um, in DC, right? So they okay. and, and they have a bunch of black writers, right? Really good writers, Jeffrey Thorne. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's his name? What I'm getting at is is there's not an analogy that I'm seeing and hearing here, right? So, for example. Summer of Soul. I don't know if you've seen the documentary oh, yeah, yeah, yet, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Black Woodstock. Right. Bigger than yeah. Woodstock. Yeah. Huge. Nobody remembers. Epic. Not <laughs> part of popular American culture. Right, yeah. Because Black it's people. not part of the broader Eurocentric, white-crafted right. notion of Americanism. And that's kind of what I'm getting at with, these, with this run that you're talking about. Is that yes, super, uh, you know, great work, representative, fantastic, but niche to a degree because of black blackness, 
Yes. Right. Yeah. And and do white people feel they need to like read a thing that's that has black people in it? Like they often feel like they don't. How many white people lost their proverbial shit when Ta-Nehisi Coates starts writing Black Panther? Because there's the black guy that I recognize from CNN. Right. He hits my popular culture culture radar, <laughs> and now he's writing for Black Panther. But how many of them got freaked out when he wrote Captain America? Because a lot of them did get freaked out when he wrote Captain America, which yeah. I actually thought was a really good run. I thought that was a great run, yeah. Right, like you know, I wrote something about that, and I was like, "This is a character. This is a guy who really understands Captain America." Yep. Right, he really understands Captain, and I think at some level, um, his run on Black Panther was him trying to rectify what that character because it is a complicated character to write in part because there there's a lot of um kind of elite narratives attached to black Panther. i mean the idea of a black king as the center of a sort of redemptive narrative is is problematic in contemporary politics and almost every black panther story that has been written in recent years is dealing with that, right? Like it's John Ridley just is writing Black Panther right now. And, you know, I've been reading that run and it's taking up the same sort of like space that Ta-Nehisi Coates took up. Like, cause it's really problematizing. Can you have a king? Is the absolute monarchy really the, the key to like a, a, a better black future? The answer is no mm-hmm. for all these people. Um, it's no for Tonasi Coast. It's no for this guy. You know, by the end of this this initial run, um, black you know, Black Panther is like, I'm never gonna be king again. You know, you're like yeah, until okay. yeah, the next writer comes in and says, but he's gotta be king. No, I, I think I think will I mean, it stick this time. I think it will stick this time. I think you know he's still running the Avengers. I mean, like it's not mm-hmm. like he don't have other things he can right. do. Right. Um, but the problem represented by a black absolute monarch. And the politics of like liberation that matter to people, yeah, he can't be king. And you're right; I could see a white writer coming in and go like he becomes king again, but I can't see a black writer doing it. Right, and that's <laughs> right. underscores yeah. really yeah. what's at the yeah. heart of what we're talking about. Right, yeah. Like, would a black writer do it? I don't think so. I think a black writer might do a flashback story when it was when it was king, but he wouldn't write like write him taking back the throne or something like no. Now it's a representative of democracy. People are voting, and they're not going to go back for that. Right. So, so let's let's wrap up this this last bit here with, with the anticipation of Black Panther two. Sure. Right. So uh, a lot of mixed emotion on that because you know Chadwick Boseman is dead. He is Black Panther. How dare you not? You know. Sure. CGI yeah. him like we did with Luke and Leia. Uh well, no, that was never going to happen. No, I know. I know. But. Uh, but you know, I think people advocating to recast the role, yeah, uh, is not that shocking. I think ultimately, the decision not to recast it was a good one. Uh, this was, in some ways, is the most successful Marvel film, like oh, critically, yeah. culturally. Uh, sure, other films might have made more money, barely, but in terms of like cultural heft, like yeah, Black Panther is by far the most culturally important film Marvel has ever made. Yeah, uh, and so the the pressure on them to like move the story forward is very very real, and so 
I have a lot of faith in Ryan Kluwer as, as a filmmaker. And I think and I'll the, say that that trailer. Yeah. For the trailer, you go like, I mean, okay. even just the music in the background, right? right? Yeah. And it then drops into Kendrick at the end of it. And you're just yeah. like, oh, yeah, they're hitting all of the right, all the, all the notes, yeah. all the feels. Yeah. Uh, and I think Shuri, although again, you think it's Shuri. Oh, I think it's Shuri. I do too. Well, I mean, if you read comics, yeah, I mean, I Shuri. think it would be Shuri, but I have this. But he doesn't have to. Theory that, it doesn't have to. She's going to be queen, and they're going to use Nakia. Right. Yeah, I, and I don't. I don't think she'll necessarily be um, Black Panther for very long because Shuri was Black Panther in the comics for a little bit. Yeah, and then she's not Black Panther anymore. She's a, she's a different. You know, she's she has a different set of powers now. Right. Uh, and then, you know, this is one of the things about comics versus the movies that's really interesting because in one way, um, the comic book version of Black Panther is a way less impressive character. <laughs> the movie version of Black Panther is a less impressive character than the, the comic book version of Black Panther because the comic book version of Black Panther is a scientist, is an inventor, is a strategist, is the king. And they separate that right. in... Shuri and and Shuri and and, and like T'Challa and T'Challa yeah. in the in the movie, and that makes a lot of sense in a movie. But the other thing they do is they make her so much younger in the movie than she was ever mm-hmm. in in any version she was in the comics. Because in the comics, she is not a young girl; she is a full grown woman. Right. And so when she becomes queen, it's. I mean, it makes, she, sense. It, it, it makes more sense. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, it, it's not, it's not quite the, she's not a Disney princess right. uh, in the comics. And then in, 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 in the movie, she's young enough to sort of like correspond to that role. Right. You know, her yeah. relationship to the parent parental figures and, you know, sexually, you know, her sexuality, all of it is, is, is corresponding to a, a pattern that, you can almost understand in the context of, of, of Disney. So it's it's interesting. I, I don't think there's any question that is one of the most anticipated films um, that are going to come out anytime soon. It is one of these films that I think people will be like, whatever, COVID, I don't care. They will go to a movie theater to see it. That, that much is clear. Right. And I think it will be really interesting. I mean, already... Um, the sort of like culture around Namor and wherever he's from, whether or not it's going to be like Atlantis, like an Atlantis that that we've referenced in the past, or something else. Like he's basically Latin American, like it's, it's Mayan, yeah. it's it's Mayo America, right? Yeah. So it's completely different take on again what traditionally in a fantasy world has been very white people, mm-hmm. right? Um. And again, that's another 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 way that Marvel is a little bit more diverse than than the DC version, right? Like they have gotten there in terms of like telling these stories from these diverse perspectives, both in terms of people in front of the camera, but also in terms of people behind the camera. Like you can see it in things like Falcon and Renna Soldier with like the head black writer and, and some of the things they dealt with there. And you see it in Miss Marvel because the writer is from that same sort of background, like a real understanding mm-hmm. of um, sort of the, some of the traumas about hybridity and, and, and South Asian identity. Uh, and, and, I, and I would imagine you're going to continue to see it because that's an important part of how Marvel is going to be able as a, you know, a global 
brand in the 21st century, this is a way that they're they are trying to expand the number of people who can participate. Yeah. Right. But so so I totally understand how like, you know, a kind of traditional white comic book fan might be like, I don't understand why I gotta do it, but that's because like you don't understand money. Right. Well, exactly. once you understand money, and it makes perfect it's about sense. More customers. Yeah. yeah, it's like we already got you as a customer. We need that person over there who never listened to this to be right. a customer. And like now there's a Pakistani American superhero and they're Pakistani American. Like, wait, what? Let me go over here and sample this, right? Like and that's new money. You owe money. And we got your money. We know we got your money, but we can get new money. So we're all gonna get new money if we can get new money. Like right. that is like American is apple pie. Right. Right? So like there it is. You don't need to like struggle with this, like you know, and your complaint ain't gonna work because like new money, actually, you know, also new money on a different platform. You who are complaining can just go back to the old stuff and get exactly what you're looking, <laughs> get exactly what you're looking for, right? Like it's the other thing, like hey, this is there are many worlds of these comics. Like I read old comics all the time, and I enjoy it. Well, Julian, uh, we're we're probably out of time. We've gone long, but that's great because it's been a fantastic <laughs> conversation. This is this breaks all the records for the Wimp podcast in terms of length. But I think wow, it's... you have to you have to edit this down, man. No, there's no. We just go straight live, man. There's no editing on this podcast. What? Oh my god! So, Julian, thank you so much. It's been an awesome conversation. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate it. it. Yeah. And uh, after this break, uh, the long-awaited. And finally debuted Beats with B. It's real. It's gonna it's be a awesome. Real thing. I was this is not my like girlfriend in Singapore. This is a real <laughs> segment and we're we're looking forward to it. So that's awesome. All right. Thanks again, everybody. Back shortly. Ladies and gentlemen, the long awaited Beats with B. Fortunate tonight to have my friend Brian out. We're uh, and we've got a we got a fantastic song tonight. Brian uh, was sat in on the the last bit of my conversation with Julian. He had a different song pick, but he just switched gears because he found something that that seemed to fit better. And I man, I tell you what, he nailed it. This is this is going to be powerful. So uh, the song that we're going to be uh, looking at tonight and beats with B comes off of Robert Glasper's 2022 album, black radio three. Uh, and the track is black superhero. So Brian, why, why did that song? I mean, obviously the title. Yeah. Jumps right out of well, and I don't want to sleep on what we already chose. Cause that'll be coming up in the future for sure. We'll keep that uh, under wraps. <laughs> but uh, yeah, here in your conversation with Julian, it just struck me. I've been listening to this record uh, Black Radio 3, pretty steadily for the last six months. It's just constantly on repeat in the house. And um, it was a it was a long-awaited return of, of this series from Robert Glasper. Uh, Robert Glasper being just a, a genius American jazz piano player, producer, singer, songwriter, uh, collaborator. And, you know, really just pulled together over the last... The, over the first black radio back in 2012 and then the second the follow-up in 2013 
um, just pulling together huge collaborations, huge names, lots of features, and, and really just showcasing uh, the, the talent of black music in, in America. Glasper is such a glue guy. Um, I mean, he plays with everybody. I mean, so I was really fortunate uh, pre-COVID. Chris Dave, who's a, a jazz drummer, mm-hmm. fantastic. Not enough people. There's you know, no and, symbol like it. Yeah, so it's, we're mixing up the segments a little bit for this episode, so we didn't have time to do, um, you know, what deserves a platform. But Chris Dave <laughs> deserves a platform. He's for a sure. wonderful drummer. He did a uh, Chris Chris Dave and the Drumheads is this kind of the stuff that he releases solo. But he did a tour and he played in Lansing, Michigan, and uh, a friend of mine, my other music nerd, Kurt, uh, was like Chris Dave's in town. We got to go see him. And I'm like, all right, let's go do it. And he already showed me the the album, yeah. which has a sweet track with, um, uh, oh, totally having a mind blank, um, and Anderson Pack mm-hmm. on it, right? So, so we go. It's, it's this place called the Loft, and it's and and so I'm I'm thinking Chris Dave, Robert Glasper comes out <laughs> to play keys with Chris Dave. I'm like, what? Yeah, the two of there them was together. like 15 people there. They were visibly like annoyed when they came out but you know what to their credit they they played the full set and it was fantastic yeah they do some really cool stuff together there's a if you've got the time and you can search for it there's a, a clip of glasper and chris dave doing a full set of recreations of of jay dilla i mean the the spirit of detroit really in yeah. detroit hip-hop um just a really cool collaboration and they're just geniuses for sure. So when we were talking earlier, you had talked about how this album coming out of COVID and the Black Lives Matter era. So you said that the the tone of this really kind of caught the moment. Yeah. Kind of, you know, tell me a little bit more like what, what we were. Well, this record was in, you know, in concept for a number of years leading into COVID. And I think things kind of stalled and what they maybe had planned and some of the the tracks that would have been released um had it not been covid this album would have looked a little bit different or maybe would have come out earlier um but you know diving into 2020 and everything that was happening you know and you know prior to that um you know life in the black community is hard and always has been and this is when you really get to sit and listen to this record and put it in the context of that moment, 2020 to 22, you know, when they're uh, kind of putting the finishing touches on this, it, from my ears, from my, you know, white background and context, it, it hit the moment. It's a soundtrack for the moment. It really is. Yeah. 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 Uh, Because of uh, fair use rules, uh, and because I don't want my podcast pulled, <laughs> you can't play the six minute I track. Yeah, no, I can't play the six minute track. So the format for Beats with B, uh, we, you know, we're going to play as max, the max amount that we're allowed to, to do here. So we, we, we picked two little segments of this song just to kind of give you a taste of it. But, but the way this is going to work in conjunction with the podcast, kind of a partner project. Uh, is I'm going to be creating a public playlist that I'll share on Apple Music, Spotify, and YouTube um, of the Beats with B segments. And so that, that those will have the full songs. And so as the podcast progresses and Brian and I put you know more songs together here, you, ultimately we're going to have a really sweet uh, mixtape, essentially, um, that you can listen to as a, as a companion uh, to this. So 
Uh, let's take a short break and we're going to give you a, just a taste of the chorus of Black Superhero off of Black Radio 3. To be rightfully celebrated as a child of God. And to be rightfully celebrated as a child of God. And wow, you know, that, that chorus really, uh, it really spoke to that moment, right? Every hood in the ghetto needs a black superhero. And there's that bit uh, underneath. Yeah, well, you get to hear the layering and just the, I mean, again, Robert Glasper's a genius uh, producer. He's got a vision for this song and you hear that kind of, uh, that, that splices in that up in the sky, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, right. you really get the, you get the imagery of, you know, that, uh, that, that black superhero that they're calling for. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's so much of this song that we wanted to, to share. You know, I have multiple clips that, uh, you know, unfortunately we don't have time to do, but there's another segment, you know, and it really, you know, talks about just the, how the black community so much needs that kind of superhero and, and, you know, poignantly talking about to protect them against the shield, which obviously, right. We're talking about the police, uh, in the black lives matter movement, you know, mm -hmm. violence against black lives, um, super, uh, powerful, um, and Glasper's piano under there is just so smooth. He's just so, so good at what he does. Yeah. I, I mean, in listening to him and a, a lot of other music that I listen to, I mean, I'm always so humbled for the, for the most part, this music isn't for me, you know, it's not for me to, to hear or dissect or, you know, and oftentimes have an opinion on, but, um, I feel fortunate to, to one, be able to appreciate it for what it is, the, but then also just to uh, to be able to sit with it and try to understand. And it's my entryway into the Black experience in a way. Um, Which is really, really important. I mean, a big part of what I do as an educator is very much trying to create an entry point into the Black community for my predominantly, you know, mid-Michigan white students, mm -hmm. you know, coming from smaller, you know, rural town, sometimes Detroit, you know, some of them have a little bit more lived experience, you know, uh, in the same neighborhoods or at least in schools with, with, uh, black, uh, students. Um, but largely, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I, that I show them, it's it just, it totally, it's a new thing. I mean, and it, this is the real lasting, uh, effect of segregation and mm -hmm. that we created separate communities that even after that, was ruled, you know, unconstitutional. And we're like, no, integration is the thing, right? Thanks to the hard work of MLK and others. Um, that legacy, that built in structural legacy, kind of getting back at what Julian was talking about before you came mm -hmm. about space and how race works into constructed space. But just that, you know, you have these white rural kids that I teach at the community college. They're not, you know, inherently anti-black they just they have no no exposure lived experience yeah. because it's never on their radar the only way it hits their radar is through the consumption of popular media and oftentimes right that media is intentionally structured in such a way as to you know 
denigrate or demean in some way, shape, or form, or stereotype, to put it nicely, the black community, black lived experience. A hundred percent. I mean, that's where... that's where we've gotten some of the biggest white artists that have come out in the last 50, 60 years is because of their, you know, kind of impersonation of that black art form of that, you know, indigenous art form of hip hop and jazz. Um, you know, it's just something that you don't have to, if you want to avoid it and if you want to, you know, not, um, sit with that you don't have to there's so many opportunities to not do that you really have to put yourself out there and want to understand what somebody else is going through and mm-hmm. um if you don't want to learn that history you don't have to in a lot of cases in this country and that's unfortunate in fact, they're, they're passing laws to make it harder Still. to learn that history yeah in places like florida right now yeah um okay so we're going to play another clip this comes from the end of the song a really just a poignant kind of uh spoken word piece yeah. that i think really yeah, and this is so hard to do. I mean, you've got uh, a five and a half minute song, and that's what really what Robert Glasper is all about. It's kind of what he does. And if you listen to the arc of this whole album, at the once once you think the end of that song is coming, you end up with, um, you know, an encore of that same song, and it flips it around in a different way. And there's always something else. Once you think the end of that song is coming, it'll it'll take a pivot and go in a different direction. Uh, it's just the genius of what he what he does and what he brings to the table. But I mean, so many featured artists, even in this song, you, that, the, the, that first verse comes out with Killer Mike. Uh, you've got BJ the Chicago Kid, Big Crit coming in at the end. Um, I mean, it's, it's so much more than we can even share here, but yeah. yeah. All right, let's get to the clip. When you speak about the superhero-ness of our communities, every ghetto, every block, every street corner, Really, all those men and women are divine. Yeah, so that's that's the end of the song. And it, it ends a little bit abruptly with my cut. It has a nice fade and then obviously works into the next track on the album. But um, yeah, I mean, these are real lives uh, that are divine, right? And we talk about, there's kind of a callback to my, my episode last week. Uh, in expanding that notion of of the divine and and how um, and how that all works, but these black lives. This is why uh, I do this podcast um, to raise uh, awareness, to raise the voices of oppressed communities and peoples. And um, again, so uh, I will post a link. Uh, or at least let you know when the playlist is live on my Instagram feed. That's wimp underscore podcast uh, on in, on Instagram. Also, as always, you know, send your feedback, positive or negative. Let me know what you think of the show. If you have questions for me, Julian, Brian, the email address is wimp.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, and so, yeah, Brian, thanks, man. It's been, it's been awesome. Now, I, I'm spoiled because every time you invite me over to your house, and I'm like just sitting in that one chair and all of a sudden I just hear these tasty pieces coming out of the corner. And I got to lean my phone back over with the Shazam and be <laughs> like, what, what do we got now? Yeah. Yeah. No, I really appreciate your music sensitivity. Uh, just the awareness and, you, you know, this is exciting. I'm glad that we finally were able to put this together. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate uh, appreciate the offer. It was, it was something fun. We kind of came up with the idea a little organically and. 
while I was um, doing just that, yeah. she's aiming tracks. I'm like, but I got to bring you in on this. Yeah. Happy to talk to another white dude about hip hop. Yeah. Well, you know what it is, right? It's about demystifying the white privilege and the white, you know, and yeah. I think anytime we can elevate these other voices, we're doing, we're doing the work. Yeah. You know, and that's what it's all about. So, uh, we're going to go out on that. Thanks everybody. Have a fantastic week. Next week, uh, just a little preview. I'm super stoked. Uh, I had mentioned in the past uh, the privilege I had to teach African-American history uh, in, uh, in a really kind of a community learning environment um, last spring. Uh, and I'm going to have two of my students from that class join me, um, Kiwi and Ryan, who uh, are both um, mixed race. And that brings a unique perspective that they brought to the table every time we talked in class. Really powerful stuff. We're going to talk about some of the code switching that they feel like they have to do when they're in institutional environments like the college classroom. Um, and uh, yeah, it's going to be a really fantastic, fantastic chat. So excited to have them on next week. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Uh-huh.